I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter uh, 6 and verse 3. Giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, of the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report, yet truth, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Heavenly Father, you don't hold back. You open up to us and share with us and give constantly. And if there's any restraining, it's done by us toward you. Forgive us. Help us, Father, as we hear your words to be like you, to, to know more today about what you're like and to be changed. Show us our sin. Show us where we're at fault. Show us where our imperfections are so that we can glorify you by being light and a true reflection of your love. Help us, Father. Help Tom as he teaches to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. You'll notice I changed my title again. I do that a lot. This one's a lot simpler, simpler than the one I put in the bulletin. I like it when we get a hymn that, that I, I, and I look at the words and think, well, I don't know this one. And then it turns out the melody is one that I know really well. That was great. Crown him with many crowns. All right. Uh, how do we know when a particular ministry or minister is commended by God, is approved by God? What is it that identifies that person or that work as approved? Do we know it because we see a lot of money flowing into the ministry? Money to do things like build more and bigger facilities and expand the physical reach of the ministry? Do we know it because that person who, who says that he represents God uh, has great popularity? Perhaps he's able to fill auditoriums without even trying. Um, perhaps he even has the respect of influential unbelievers. Should we expect God to shelter a commended minister or ministry from painful persecution and hardship, from bad press and defaming accusations? Should we assume that God will protect an approved servant from physical harm and from imprisonment? Have you ever 
thought those questions before when you're trying to assess the legitimacy of a particular ministry? I think most of us have. Now, I have no doubt that God has granted those sorts of provisions and protections to some ministers or ministries at some times. But the question that the passage we're looking at today addresses is not how might God choose to provide for or to protect a particular servant of God or ministry. The question that this passage addresses is what does God say commends a servant to him? What does he say makes the service of a servant of God commended? That's what we most need to know, right? Not what might God do, but what God requires of us in order that our ministry would be commended. Now, if it looked like this passage that Jonathan just read for us began in mid-sentence, that's because it did. Uh, You guys know that the Apostle Paul is very fond of long sentences, as am I. Uh, So sometimes you you catch him in mid-stream, but... At the, at the end of the last passage, Paul laid out for us the heart of the ministry and message of reconciliation that we bear to this world. Now, he, as he returns to the defense of his own ministry against criticisms and accusations that were made by some in Corinth, he continues to build on what he has already said about living as God-pleasing agents of reconciliation. He says that he and his fellow servants of Christ have given, quote, no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry, and that's the ministry of reconciliation he was just talking about, in order that the ministry would not be discredited. And then he goes to the positive side of that same assertion. He says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in great endurance. Now, the commendation Paul's talking about there does not come from him. When he says commending ourselves, he means doing the things that that God commends. Doing the things that God commends. Uh, He's saying he and his co-workers live and serve in a manner that receives the approval of God. And what manner is that? What is it about Paul's life of service to Christ that gives him this, this great confidence so that he can come right out and say, we are commended by God. Well, Kent Hughes, uh, this great commentary right here, Kent Hughes points out, and I agree, that the phrase in great endurance in verse 4 is the focal point of everything else that Paul says in verses 4 through 13 about what makes his ministry approved by God. Now, in order to explain Why I agree that Hughes is right on that understanding, I have to talk about grammar for a minute. So if if grammar is the kind of thing that puts you in a catatonic state, uh, just bear with me for about 30 seconds, it'll get better. Uh, Paul quite literally singles out the phrase in great endurance in verse 4 from the series of phrases, in phrases that come right after it. This is evident from the fact that the word endurance is singular and it's modified by the adjective much or great. But then comes seven additional in phrases, each with a plural noun and no adjective. 
in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors. Those seven phrases, along with all the other phrases that fill verses 4 through 13, answer the question, great endurance in what? Great endurance in what? In other words, Paul is saying, what makes our service commended by God is our great endurance in all of the things I'm about to lay in front of you. Does that make sense? Okay. With that in mind, each of my outline points for this message starts with the words, commended servants endure. First, commended servants endure in persecution and hardship. Verses 4 and 5. The common theme in those two verses is is continued endurance in the midst of persecution for Christ's sake and of the hardship that comes because of that persecution. Again, Paul says, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Now let me just real quick throw out the the, the thought, does that look like a commended ministry? to you? All right, let's keep going. (laughs) Paul and his co-workers for Christ, men like Timothy and Titus and Silas, who were well known to the Corinthian saints, had all faced great persecution and hardship for serving faithfully as ambassadors of Christ. Paul gives a whole lot more detail about the sufferings that he endured later in chapter 11. Look at that when we get there. But the list he gives here is sufficient to make his point. The life of a commended servant of God will be a life filled with opposition and hardship for Christ's sake. If our words and our actions make us approved by people who reject Christ instead of rejected by people who reject Christ, then it's not Christ that we're serving. It's people. Think about that for a minute, guys. I hate to tell you, but the cultural acceptance of Christianity that we enjoyed in this country for a long, long time is a a huge aberration in the history of the church. It's not the way things work. Okay? And yes, it's kind of going away, isn't it? Sorry, I think that's good riddance. I think the church flourishes when the church is treated like Christ was treated. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be hated by all on account of my name. Is there anything ambiguous about that statement? A few verses later, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? They said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus is saying, guess what they're going to say about you? The life of an ambassador of Christ is a life that is continually and militantly opposed by the forces of wickedness on earth and in the angelic realm. The commended servant of God endures that opposition and all of the pain that comes with it 
because Christ is worthy of that endurance. So first, commended servants endure in persecution and hardship. Secondly, commended servants endure in utter dependence on the Spirit and the power of God. In verses 6 and 7, Paul continues with the list of things in which commended servants greatly endure. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Now let me stop right there in verse 6. It's no accident that the Holy Spirit is right there in that list. If you go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Uh, and then he says, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, purity and self-control are, are very much tied together. So of the six points of endurance that Paul lists in verse 6, four of them are fruit of the Spirit. One of them is the Holy Spirit. And the sixth one is knowledge. And as was pointed out this morning, 1 Corinthians 2, where do we get the knowledge of the deep things of God? The Holy Spirit. Okay. All of these things come to us by the work of the Spirit in the believer. You get fruit. Well, how, how does a tree get fruit? By, by trying to produce fruit? No, by biting in the root. We get the fruit of the Spirit not by pursuing the fruit, but by abiding in the vine who is Christ, John 15, and by constant prayerful dependence on the work of the Spirit who is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In verse 7, Paul says that we endure in the word of truth, in the power of God, and by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. I love that. Verse 7 is a, is a partial list of the equipment that God gives us to live as commended servants in the midst of constant opposition that Paul already talked about. Equipment that, uh, that we must endure in laying hold of day after day. Now, God has equipped us mightily to do battle on Christ's behalf in this world. And, and, and make no mistake, beloved, we are at war. When I was in college, I was in Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, a while back, they changed the name because the word crusade, they said it carried too much of a connotation of the crusades, which were you know, not, the, not a very good expression of, uh, of Christ-likeness. But, but the problem I had with that is that, you, guys, we are in a war. And we shouldn't water that down. We shouldn't act like it's not true. We wake up behind enemy lines every single day of our lives. And if you're on the front line behind enemy lines, you got to be ready. A, a disarmed soldier is a defeated soldier. And make no mistake about this either, we are at war against the fiercest most skillful, most deceitful, and most relentless enemy that any human being will ever encounter anywhere. 
1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is the normal Christian life being opposed by this, this great adversary. Firm in our faith. God has given us all that we need to resist the fierce attacks of Satan, not merely to defend ourselves, but to storm the very gates of hell. As my brother Steve Novakovich pointed out when Jesus, when Jesus said, when he talked to Peter and to his disciples about storming the gates of hell, do you know gates, gates are defensive, not offensive. And if you're storming gates, that means you're on the offense. Ours are not the kinds of weapons that the world considers powerful. In fact, the world considers our weapons laughable. But ours are way better than theirs. Later in chapter 10, this same letter, Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul expands this list of spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, but I'm not going to go there. I want to stay where he's focusing. Three things, the word of truth, the power of God, and the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. You and I don't need a pair of pearl-handled Colt 45 revolvers to do two-fisted battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness. God has given us the living and active word that lays the souls of men and women bare before God. He has given us the indwelling power of God and the person of the Spirit. And He has filled both our hands with the righteousness of Christ. And He's not talking about imputed righteousness here. He's talking about righteousness put into practice. It is, it is, as, we, it is as we live in the righteousness of Christ that God destroys fortifications that are lifted up against Christ. Beloved, every bit of what equips us to stand firm and to remain strong as we storm the very gates of hell, every bit of our enablement to do so is otherworldly. There's not one part of it that is from around here. And that means that we are dependent on the one who gives it. Until we stop treating powerless earthly things as if they are powerful, we will not take up and put to use the things that actually are. We must endure in laying hold of the word of truth, the power of God, and the weapons of righteousness in both hands. Commended servants endure when they are assessed well or assessed badly by others. Paul says, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, in verse 8, 
If, again, if we are living and serving in a manner that pleases God, some may hold us in honor and give good report about our service. But we need to know that most, most will hold us in dishonor and will bring a bad report about our ministry, our service. That's not paranoia. That's, that is God's clear declaration to his faithful servants from cover to cover in the Bible. If you, you don't believe me, go read Isaiah 6 and look at what God said to Isaiah as he was sending him into the work of ministry. It was true of the faithful prophets in the Old Testament. It was true of John the Baptist who heralded the coming of Jesus. It was true of Christ's faithful apostles and followers, and it is true of every commended servant of God today. We know it is true of us because the servant is not better than the master. And the greatest dishonor ever experienced on this earth was suffered by Jesus at the hands of sinners like you and me. What made his his humiliation so great is that he is the Lord of glory. We are to endure, we are to remain steadfast in the service of Christ, regardless of the reputation that we have in the eyes of other people. Ultimately, as you've heard said many times, we have an audience of one. We have an audience of one, and his commendation is the only one that matters. Starting at the end of verse 8, continuing to verse 10, commended servants endure by the triumphant paradoxes of God. I love that phrase, the triumphant paradox. I stole that from Kent Hughes. I love it. Paul presents seven paradoxes that are true of commended servants of God. And I, and I love the discussion this morning about, how, about counterintuitive Christianity. That's what Paul's getting at right here. The Oxford Online Dictionary has this as its first definition of the word paradox. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. In other words, it looks like it shouldn't be true, but it's true. Here are seven paradoxes. As deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. If you're looking for evidence of God's approval of a person's ministry on Christ's behalf, it's important to look for the things that God actually says will demonstrate that approval. And one of those things that should stand out like a sore thumb is paradox. The commended servant's life will look to many as if it is devoid of blessing when they define blessing on man's terms. But it will be filled to overflowing with the things that God calls desirable, the things that God calls blessed. The first triumphant paradox that characterizes the life of a committed servant of God is as deceivers and yet true. 
The word deceiver that's used there, the very same word that the Jewish religious leaders used twice right after Jesus' burial. When they came to Pontius Pilate, and they said in Matthew 27, verses 63 and 64, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, he being Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Now that should bring at least a chuckle because do you, you know what they said when they, were, when they were putting Jesus on trial? Do you know what they said he said about the temple? They said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They knew what he said. And here they acknowledge it. They knew he was talking about his body. Even though the disciples had trouble with that one. But the Jewish leaders, they got it, right? They knew that a resurrection was coming. They at least feared it. And so anyway, who's the deceiver here? After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. So they, they managed to get a you know, Roman cohort to, to guard, the, guard the tomb and how much good did that do? Jesus was called the deceiver. The servant is not greater than the master. So you and I, if we are truly living as ambassadors of Christ, we should fully expect to be labeled as deceivers by this God-forsaking world. They will call our testimony of Christ a contrivance, a myth, and a bad one at that. But the witness that we bear to this world concerning Christ is the truth that all human beings most desperately need to know and believe. Second triumphant paradox as unknown and yet well-known. Paul, Timothy, Silas, Titus, they were certainly not household names in the, in the big cities in the Roman Empire in which, they, in which they ministered. And many of those who knew their names did not know their hearts. But among us who were of the household of the living God, the lives and ministries of those faithful men are still ministering to us by the work of God. 2,000 years later, they are well known to us by the work of God. Your faithful ministry on Christ's behalf may have a transforming impact on few or many. But God will make you very well known to those you love and serve faithfully on His behalf. I see a whole lot of that going on in this body. Well, consider the next two paradoxes together. As dying, yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death. And that word punish means exactly what it says. In chapter 4, Paul said that we carry about daily in our body the dying of Christ. To the eyes of the world, the suffering that we endure for Christ's sake looks to them like we are being chastened or punished by God rather than approved by God. That was clearly part of what caused some in Corinth to question the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. Now, but Paul was in the best of company here, right? 
700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, God through Isaiah wrote these words about Christ. This is verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Listen to the next part. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Long before it happened, God prophesied that Jesus' own people would consider him punished by God for his evil. But he was punished by God for our evil. And that's the greatest passage on substitutionary atonement in the whole Bible. It's in the Old Testament. By the time Paul wrote this epistle, he, Paul, had, been, had personally been beaten times without number, often left to die. He had received 39 lashes by order of the Jewish authorities, not once, but five times. Do you realize that, that many men died after one round of 39 lashes? Some, uh, Paul had been beaten with rods. He had been stoned. They intended to death. He had been shipwrecked and treaded water for a day and a half. But he had not been put to death. One of the many evidences of God's commendation of Paul's ministry was that his physical life had been preserved by God over and over. Of course, Paul would eventually have his head removed by order of Caesar for the sake of Christ. But until the day that God ordained to take Paul home, it was impossible for any mortal man to take his life. Do you know that's true of you too? Until the day that God ordains to take you home, it is impossible for any mortal man to take your life. Can't be done. The same, of course, was true of Jesus. Look at the Gospels. Read how many times it says the mob wanted to kill him and he just walked right through them, untouched. Until the day that God ordained for him to die in our place. The fifth triumphant paradox that Paul presents is as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Of course, this is a big one. The sorrows of Paul's life were very real. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul speaks of a time in which he and his co-workers had been, quote, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Next verse, he says, that was so that we might trust in the one who raises the dead. In chapter 11, Paul speaks of his deep concern that, that he continually bore for all the churches. The faithful Christian life knows many sorrows. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, and you know what, guys? Loving others as Christ loves us adds sorrow. It doesn't take it away. Like Paul, you and I are called not only to endure the suffering that directly comes toward us, but we are to enter into the suffering of others, of one another. We're to be in the trenches with each other. We are to bear each other's sorrows and each other's joys. 
That's hard stuff. The self-denying, Christ-exalting life of a commended servant of God is not less sorrowful than the lives of those who live for self. In many respects, is more sorrowful. But here's the, here's the beautiful truth. In the midst of many sorrows, our lives are filled with rejoicing. That's the paradox. The world thinks that sorrow and joy are mutually exclusive. God says, not at all. Not at all. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice. He's just been talking about our living hope. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And every time he uses that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 he's talking about when Jesus comes back. And though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, but believe in him. And then listen, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Wow. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the guaranteed outcome. For servants of God, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. But in the midst of the sorrows of this short time that we spend here under the curse, we rejoice always. Because our trust is not in the temporary comforts that this world affords. Our trust is in God alone. And, and we live in the eager anticipation of the soon return of Jesus to claim His bride. We'll spend forever with him, together with one another. The last two triumphant paradoxes of commended servants are at the end of verse 10. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Isn't that great? We're poor, we make many rich, and at the same time, we're rich. <laughs> In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of possessions. Commended servants of God have a radically different definition of poverty and wealth than the world has. Our wealth is not a bunch of temporary things that we amass for ourselves and then lose when we die. Our wealth is the unfathomable, everlasting riches of Christ that God has lavished upon us so that we can freely give them away without losing any. Our lives are filled with a wealth of relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with a wealth of purpose, of power, of truth, and of eternal impact 
for the sake of Christ. And it's all because of Christ. Finally, commended servants endure with open mouths and wide open hearts. Verses 11 to 13, Paul gets very personal with these Corinthian saints whom he loves as his own spiritual children. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, and our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Commended servants of God, speak truth boldly and love without restraint. Commended servants, speak truth boldly and love without restraint. Those two things are absolutely inseparable. Truth and love. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. How is it that we together grow up into Christ, into maturity, into the, the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ? How is that? By speaking the truth in love to one another. Without an earnest love for the brethren, a minister, a servant in any capacity who wants to be a commended servant of Christ, is not prepared or qualified to teach and preach the Word of God. Without love, you ought to just keep your mouth closed. A rigorous knowledge of the Word and prayerful, careful handling of God's Word are indispensable, but those alone won't get the job done. My brother Bob taught me a lot. You know, he preached... For 37 years here. He is my brother, my mentor, my fellow elder. He made my transition into this role 10 years ago smoother than any I've ever heard of. And I rub shoulders with several other preachers, pastors. I have been loved by this body magnificently, and so is my family. And, and my constant prayer, my constant prayer is that I will love well. Because if I don't, I have no business standing up here. It wasn't Paul who was restrained in his godly affection for the Corinthian saints. It was the, in the other direction. And Paul concludes with this Beautiful and earnest appeal to his beloved brothers and sisters. He says, open wide to us also. Where do we go with all this? <laughs> well, there is a deeply entrenched mindset, especially in the affluent Western evangelical church, that equates worldly measures of success with the commendation of God. Uh, that's how it was in Jesus' day, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they lived at a higher standard of living than, the, than by far than most of the people that they were supposed to represent before God. And everybody thought that was because God was, approved, was approving their work. Jesus blew that away. It, he destroyed that myth. As we've already said, prosperity 
security and comfort in this life have never been the usual normal experience of God's faithful servants on earth. Paul never pastored a megachurch. And I'm not trying to denigrate megachurches, but Paul never pastored a megachurch. He didn't expect or have God's protection from insult, from evil report, or from harm at the hands of those who opposed his master and savior. He was harmed a lot temporarily. Instead, he, he suffered greatly over very many years precisely because of his faithful service on behalf of Christ. I'll never forget when, when the doctors were shipped back here who had gotten Ebola, doctors and nurses who had gotten Ebola, and some of them right here in Dallas hospitals. There's this one doctor, and he was interviewed on, on CNN, and the lady asked him, how, how is it that if you trust God so much that he would let this happen to you? And his answer was, Serving Christ is not a safe thing to do, and it never has been. But if we suffer for Christ, beloved, we are in the best of company. Because the, the perfect example of a commended servant is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Worldly comforts played no part at all in the Father's absolute approval of all that Jesus said and did. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said to one would-be disciple, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Did Jesus have the kind of popularity that modern preachers point to as proof of God's approval? Well, one day in John chapter 6, Jesus addressed and then miraculously fed a crowd that numbered in the tens of thousands. The 5,000 was just the adult males. But just a little later that same day, Christ's uncompromising proclamation of the truth about what actually saves people instantly reduced that enormous crowd to a small handful. Jesus said to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, no, you're the one who has words of life. You're the only one who has words of life. Now, just think about that for one second. I'm almost done. Is that the kind of track record that most pastoral search committees are looking for? Jesus endured through great persecution, through many unjust accusations, even accusations of blasphemy against God, the Lord of glory who deserved only adoration and honor endured the greatest humiliation ever suffered by a man on this earth he was mocked, spat upon, cursed, and crucified, the Lord of glory, to make us his own forever. Romans 8, 16 and 17 is my last quotation here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God means we inherit God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them in order that we may be glorified with them. That's how this works. A commended servant will suffer with Jesus. And you've heard me ask the question before, how long did Jesus suffer before he got to return to his glory? 
until he died. The servant is not greater than the master. Beloved, the normal and expected order of things for commended servants of God in Christ is that we're going to participate in his death until the day we participate in his resurrection. Commended servants endure because Jesus is worthy of all. Dear Father, we desire to be found approved in your sight as servants of Christ. We know that that will demand lives that are willingly laid down for him. It will demand that we set aside the pursuit of the things that this world treasures. But the triumphant paradoxes of our God tell us that we are more than overcomers now and in eternity. The day will soon come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is worthy of all. It is in his name and for his sake that we serve and that we pray. Amen.